Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hey, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast, where we are bringing all the co-op stuff straight to your eardrums. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Today, we're looking at The Loop, which uh, Peter recently had his first video review in the 5 and 5 format on the main YouTube channel. Woo! Good job, Peter. I thought you did a great video there. Thanks. People have been requesting for a long time to have more than just me reviewing on the YouTube channel, and uh, that's mostly just because other people don't want to. It's not really <laughs> like I'm, I'm beating them away or anything, but yeah, Peter's uh, agreed, especially to do some like solo Euro games and things that he loves more than I do and give a different perspective on there sometimes. Yeah, no, definitely look forward to Gaia Project coming soon, and then I'd like to get some other stuff that we haven't had a chance to cover. I'm sure I won't be doing stuff like Marvel Champions because everybody knows how I feel about that game. Hey, uh, you, you, you can join my 5 Pro review, which is probably no longer relevant, <laughs> and make it your own 5 Pro review. <laughs> right. Well, I, I would definitely have cons, though. I mean, that's the thing. You know me. And for anybody listening, and if this is your first time, welcome. But, like, you know, I try to find the good and the bad in each game. Like, you can't have 5 Pros or 5 Cons, and that was kind of our thoughts from the beginning. Like, no game is perfect, and there's always things we can improve on in games. So I would probably think of some things, like, it doesn't scale well. Right. <laughs> like, yep. Absolutely. Yeah, no, they definitely. Uh, there are many things since my that was like a late night bender of a review, which is not the best way to review a game, but that's the choice I made back then. But anyway, we're going to talk about the loop, and then we're going to have a design discussion on games that are pandemic style games and what that even means, <laughs> at least what we think it means. Yes. All right, Mike. So you've been playing anything lately? So you might have seen some things on the channel. Uh, we played the Crime Zoom series. These are like murder, mystery, escape room-ish, like hour-long games uh, from Europe, but they're being brought over here by Lucky Ducks. We played two of those. But I was very excited. I finally taught Vanessa Bullet, which is, as many of you know, probably my favorite game of the year and favorite game of many years. <laughs> did you guys play co-op or did you play competitive? Oh, of course. What do you think? Of course I played competitive. Shot her in the head multiple times. No, no, we, we played uh, co-op. And uh, yeah, she, she had a great time. I, I did uh, basically easy mode because it was late and she was tired. <laughs> so I just took away all the bosses like shield abilities and all the bosses patterns. And it was just basically like kill the boss as quickly as we need to. So it was really just uh, teaching her how to manage her bullets. But it was a great time. And we also had the chance to play Dune House Secrets. This is the new one in the detective kind of, I guess not detective series because it's not a detective game, but it's the detective mechanics from uh, Portal Games. But with a Dune theme added on, and Dune's one of my favorite uh, books, and I'm very excited to see the new movie. I know, Peter, you already saw it. Yep. And uh, yeah, c- kind of mixed. Uh, if I do a review, I'm not sure how uh, friendly it'll be. I think it might be negative. <laughs> Well, and Ignacy was right, right? He's like, why would I send you a review copy? You hated Detective. Well, now, in my defense, if you look on VGG, no one likes Dune House Secrets, so it is not me and my personal taste in this case. It is a pretty much universal revilement of the game from what I've seen, which is uh, not not good for them, of course. I I never like to see a a game design struggle, but they made some choices here that I am not sure I like, but I'm going to finish it before I do a review, so we'll see if things turn around, maybe. So we played the prequel together, and... There was just so many names they throw out at you. Oh, my gosh. 
and this is my problem with the regular detective as well, right? They throw these names out, and I'm not good with remembering names anyway, and I guess I could jot them down on a piece of paper. But how hard would it have been for them to put in a picture of every person? They're, they could say, get card three. They do that for certain things. Get card three, and they got a picture of this person, and that way it sticks in my mind because, like, these names keep coming out, and I'm like, I have no idea who you're talking about anymore. Like, was this somebody we've already met, or is this somebody new? I, I don't know. And so that was one of my negatives. But the other big negative was we got done with the prologue, and it was like no conclusion at all. <laughs> like, none. Well, yeah, so, so I, I'll, I played a bit more, Peter, and I'll warn you right now, this is a major complaint against the game. It's not a detective game, which is okay. This is all about your expectations for a game. But they never really ask you like questions at the end. It is a story. You are playing through a story that gives you very minor choices of which way you go to experience the story, much less than what you would expect from like a regular choose your own adventure. But you are reading a story that has a little bit of app integration and has a little bit of choice. So yeah, if, if, if you're in there to solve a mystery, uh, nope. <laughs> Get out now. <laughs> And it's so weird because they keep like saying that it's like set in their detective universe or, or built on the detective system or whatever else. And I get that. I played it like, yeah, you're doing the same kind of actions, but it sets this expectation. Right. And there is a mystery in there. Right. That's the other part. Well, it's not like, yeah, it's not like they didn't put a mystery in. So they set an expectation, putting it in the same universe. Then they put a mystery in there and then they're like, yep, I'm, I hope you enjoyed that mystery. It's a. It's like, what? Yeah, there were some bad choices there. And by the way, it's funny what Peter said about the name thing. I was lost on the names too, because you would think if it was like Thufur Hobbit and, you know, Paul Atreides and Glausel or whatever his first name is, Raban, like I'm a Dune head. I would be all about that. I would remember those names easily, but it's all these new Dune names that mean nothing. (laughs) So it doesn't even help that I'm a fan of the IP. Uh, It's still impossible to remember. Well, after you read about the fourth name, Jerry looked over at me and he just knew. He saw the dead look in my eyes and he just started laughing hysterically because he knew. I was like, there's no way. I don't remember not one of those names. Anyway, l- l- let's stop beating up on the game. I'll-, I'll finish it and do a video and probably beat up on it more. But <laughs> let's uh, let's move on. What-, what have you been playing, Peter? So my wife's been out of town. So it's just been me and the kids. And when this happens, we kind of tend to get into projects. So I haven't really played anything this week. The only thing I've done is painting. So I started painting stuff that I had been painting before. I finished Starcadia Quest painting, and it got me into other stuff. And one of those other stuff is Marvel Crisis Protocol. I got really excited by this game. I love miniatures type games. And one thing that pulled me out was I noticed on Board Game Geek, somebody had made like 20 or so solo missions for Marvel Crisis Protocol. So I got super excited by that. And I love miniatures games. I'm going to play it competitively anyway. And I was super excited to see that there's going to be a way for me to play it solo as well. So that might be another five and five and review I do uh, eventually, and maybe even a gameplay. Although I'm going to have to figure out how to set up cameras and stuff. Or maybe I just do it on TTS the way I normally do. Well, I don't know, Peter. You know that I'm the true fan of heavy miniature skirmish games. So oh, clearly. maybe you should let me get <laughs> that one. That's my favorite genre. I mean, why are you expecting skepticism here? That's, that's exactly what I love. Yes. Well, and that's why we need another reviewer, right? Somebody to do the Euro games. Somebody to do the miniatures based games. Yeah, no, we, we need a different voice on this channel. Somebody with some taste. Wow. Wow. With taste, he says. Uh, (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, anyway, we are going to get into our review of The Loop. But first, I'd like to thank, uh, we'd like to thank some of our amazing Patreon supporters. 
They are helping us keep the show running. It does cost money every year. Uh, we have to pay for the music we use in all our videos. We have to pay for the games. We have to pay for equipment and computers and programs. Uh, tons of stuff. So thank you so much to our Patreon supporters who help us defray all those costs. Uh, keep on putting on the shows and doing the content we do. This week, we'd like to thank Taya Tamey, who is a co-op lover. Rico Sneller, a co-op MVP. And Tim Burnett, a co-op MVP as well. So Taya, Rico, and Tim, thank you so much. Thanks to all our patrons, everyone on our Discord everyone who comments on our youtube channels uh, we really appreciate all the engagement you have with our content you make it happen nice so if this is your first time joining us we are going to tell you a little bit about the game first a little bit about the theme and then the mechanics and then we're going to do our top five things you need to know which starts with our number five and goes to our number one five being the least important going to our number one which is the most important although of course they're all important or they wouldn't have made our list mike you want me to start a little with the theme sure Dr. Horrible and his evil sing-along blog. No, what was his? <laughs> I wish it. I would, I would love that. I, I, love, <laughs> I love those shorts. That'd be great. Nice. Uh, what was his name? Dr. Dr. Foe, right? So Dr. Foe is trying to mess with the space-time continuum. He goes to all these different eras, and he's creating clones and things like that, and there are anomalies. He's creating paradoxes, and he's trying to mess with the world altogether. And basically, if he gets his way, then he's going to blow everything up. But you have to try to stop him by achieving these goals to help him, or not to help him, definitely not to help him. You go around achieving these goals to try to stop him from getting to his goal. Lots of goals going on there. There so, is. <laughs> and I won't go too much into the mechanics because this is a uh, game that I think it's easy to review mechanically, like the mechanics are the main focus. But uh, basically, at the beginning of each player's turn, it is enemy turn, player turn, enemy turn, player turn in sort of pandemic style. Oh, our design discussion. But uh, at the beginning of each player's turn, they put out some like agents, some minions, some clones of Dr. Foe, Dr. Horrible on the board. Then they also put out an artifact. They drop some cubes after rotating Dr. Foe's little cube tower, which has these three spouts. And the cubes will go into uh, three different areas, and they could potentially make those areas like blow up and get you closer to losing the game. And then you take your turn. You can move once for free on your turn. Besides that, all your actions come from a unique action deck for your character. And there's a minor deck building in that you can add artifacts to that deck. And the cards will describe the action you can take with them. You can also spend these green cubes on the board to take other actions. And you basically try to remove the bad things on the board, the uh, evil Dr. Foe clones and uh, the red cubes. And you try to achieve the objectives you currently have. In the basic scenario, there are some advanced scenarios. You got to achieve four objectives before Dr. Foe takes over four regions, basically puts vortexes on them. So that's uh, about it for the mechanics. Uh, Peter, you want to jump off with your number five for the loop? Absolutely. But before I get there, I guess I should say we did get this as a review copy. We got the demo copy that came out of Origins this year. And just a funny story with that. I bring it home, start playing with my daughter. She really likes it. But then I notice she has like one of the pieces in her mouth. I'm like, you do realize like thousands of people have been touching that piece all weekend. I was like, get that out of your mouth. So uh, yeah, there's that. And she's no, she's not a baby. No, I, just... I, I, lo I love that your only concern is the number of hands that have touched the piece, not just the fact that she has a game piece in her mouth in any case. <laughs> well, it was a chunky wooden piece. It was fine. It was fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Peter, Peter feeds his children sticks and leaves, just like I use for my miniature games. Nice. All right. Well, starting with my number five, and that is scaling. And I think this game scales in two ways very well. Not only does it scale with player count, 
from one to four, but it also scales in difficulty very well. So it's very easy to change and scale difficulty in the game by uh, adding more or less cubes aboard, whatever else, adding more or less enemies to the board. You can have them come out faster, things like that, or player count as well. It does a good job. Now, there's some downtime at higher player counts, but I still think the game is engaging enough that there's stuff going on to watch and you can give other players actions and things like that when it's not their turn. So I think it goes quick enough that it works at all player counts as well. Yeah, and I I don't agree with a lot of that, but it's one of my later points. And I'm going to be more negative on this game than Peter. (laughs) I know because I watched his video review. So for once, I have the secret information before you. Well, see, there's the trick on you. I never watch your video review, so I have no idea. Well, what's I, I had to edit yours, so I couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> touche, friend. Touche. Uh, the one thing I'll add on with the difficulty scaling is that I do wish they had an official way to make it easier. Now, it's certainly easy to kind of put it together yourself. But uh, like playing with my son several times today and earlier this week, I found that it, it can be a little bit tough. And I wish there was like some easy mode. They have tons of difficulty variants to make the game harder, uh, zero difficulty variants to officially make the game easier. And I think that would be nice if they had included that. But it's a very minor complaint. Again, there are so many ways you could do it yourself that would, you know, just have fewer objectives to win, have fewer guys come out every round. That is not really a big deal. Yeah, that's interesting because I found the game actually pretty easy at standard difficulty, but I also didn't play with the young children. The youngest I played with was 10. So just to give you a little bit of an idea of where it was at, we did not have difficulty, but I know the game's swingy also. So certainly it could have been that as well. Well, yes, that that was, we'll we'll get to that later, but we had two times we had objectives like in the game today where uh, we were about to complete them and then no. (laughs) And then they blew up. Yeah. Yes. Well, actually that, that goes right into my number five, which is the victory objectives in the game. And this is a mix. So you'll have two of these objectives up in the basic scenario at a time. And they'll tell you like different actions you could do. So like if you remove red cubes from where Dr. Foe is, you get to place a cube on this. Or if you get rid of minions on this spot, you get to put a cube on this. And that's the positive of this. That's where the uh, pro side comes in. I really think it's nice how it changes up your actions and kind of informs the puzzle because actions will have different values. And as much as you might want to put out the fire over here, you really want to be aggressively pursuing these objectives if you actually want to win the game because the game accelerates and you'll lose quickly if you don't uh, get to it. So I definitely appreciate that. Now, there aren't that many objectives. You'll tend to see the same ones in each game. You take out uh, three of them at random at the beginning of the game, but they have optional modules that change up the scenarios. So honestly, I think the variety out of the base game is very good, and I can see them adding expansions in the future with more. But the part that I don't like that brings it down to a mix for me is that they are very specific. And this is going to tie into one of my later points about the action cards. But uh, there are many times where your placement, the randomness of where Dr. Foe goes, the action cards you have available to you will make it impossible for you to make any forward progress on the objectives. And I found that sometimes kind of frustrating. And it's kind of part of the general swinginess of the game that will come up many times in my review. But uh, I still enjoy them. I think they uh, are more interesting than, for example, in Pandemic, like waiting for cards to come into your hand. They are certainly more active and add to the puzzle of the turn. But I also found them sometimes frustrating. Yeah, and some are more swingy than others. Certainly some of them, you can always do something to achieve it, where others, it's like you're waiting for a red cube to show up where Dr. Foe's facing. And you're like, oh, come on. (laughs) Yeah, those are the worst ones, the ones that are based on Dr. Foe's uh, location, especially when you have to uh, defeat the, like, clones on his location. Sometimes there just aren't any of those clones on the game. You know, there's, like, literally, (laughs) there's no way that I saw, at least on the cards that we've played with, that moves Dr. Foe. So it's just a total kind of crapshoot for some of the objectives. It's only 2 out of 10, I think, or 3 out of 10. So it's not, again, a huge deal, but it was enough for it to be a mix for me. 
Yeah, and Dr. Full will move between turns as well. So if there's none that reach him this turn, that just means there are more that'll probably go where he's going to end up next turn. And it does give you a little bit of pre-knowledge as to where he's going because he won't go to the same space more than once. There are seven different eras that he'll go between. And as you play longer and longer into each of the three rounds of the game, each of those errors keep coming up and they won't duplicate themselves. So you do have a little bit of an idea, at least where he might be going and you can kind of set up for that a little bit, but I agree. The one that frustrated me the most was red cubes had to pop out in a certain area. And of course only three of the eras could they go in because of the way his ramp works. And of course, even when the ramp was facing right at that era that I needed a red cube, <laughs> they came out on the sides of those turns. So yep. I'm like, come on now, <laughs> like just come out, please. So, yep, I, I could see that getting frustrating if it doesn't come out a way you want. There's always a second one to work on. And I've never had a time where both of them were frustrating at the same time. So I guess it wasn't as much of a con for me. But my number four has a little bit to do with my number five, which is the scaling in player count. But my number four, I thought, deserved its own spot, which is solo play. I think solo play in this game is actually really good and really fun and really fast. So the way it works is you're going to control multiple characters. You can control anywhere from two to four. And I mostly did two characters, although I did experiment with three. And I don't think it would be a problem to run three, four. It doesn't matter. And this is why. Because you shuffle all the cards together. And then as you flip cards off the top of your deck, it'll tell you which of your characters it's supposed to go to. And then you just place it on that character. And then when there are three on any character, then you can start activating. Now, that's the way it works at the beginning of the game. But as the game goes on, there's a deck building element to the game where you're going to get these neutral cards and you could put those on any of your characters. So you can kind of, in a way, control which character gets activated and all the characters get activated and they start having cards in their hands. So even cards that say, hey, another character can play a card from their hand. You can even work within that framework. So I thought solo worked really well. It didn't at all feel like an add-on, tacked-on thing. It felt really well implemented. And there's other games that have tried to do this before. I'm looking at you marvel united and i don't think did it as well this game i thought did it excellently i thought solo play was amazing one of my favorite ways to play it yeah and i agree 100 that'll come up in a minute but uh yes everything you just said totally <laughs> my number four is kind of related to the number five but it is focused on dr foe's turns and kind of how the enemy turns run and this is again a mix although it mostly leans pro for me the enemy turns are pretty quick to resolve. That's definitely in their favor. Like I said, you just put out a token, you draw an artifact, you flip a card for where he turns, you drop some cubes. So it's not that bad. And the cube dropping is fun. It's got a nice little game element. This is a very small cube. It's not like uh, some of the ones that I, I know you mentioned in your video review, Peter. Uh, the Spill has like a cube tower and uh, I guess a return to dark tower. Is that what it's called? Yes, yeah, that, that, that is, of course, a, a very involved cube tower, yeah. <laughs> but this one is like a little tiny thing, but it is fun. It is just fun to drop cubes in there, and it is tense, as you, like, pray it doesn't go to this location or pray it doesn't go to that location. Uh, that's all great, but that's also the potential negative side. Again, it's not that negative for me, but uh, the swinginess is really on show here, because not only a cube going to the wrong place will bring Dr. Foe closer to winning, but it can take away that artifact you were about to get that you really liked, and the big one is you can take away an objective that you're really close to fulfilling. Certainly the biggest swing in the game. It's a shorter game than something like Eldritch Horror, but it almost reminded me of like the terrible cards in Eldritch Horror where you just have to redo an entire mystery. Like if yep. I'm one action away from solving an objective and then that one cube fell in the, or not that one cube, all three cubes fell yes. in the exact wrong way <laughs> just because of the randomness of the cube drop. That's not that fun for me. But uh, that, that's a random thing. 
and I think the randomness is good for the game. I think it needs it. I'm not really saying this should have been changed, but it can be a negative experience for the players. So still, uh, you know, mostly pro for me, but don't always love how the enemy turns run. And they could have even done something where they give you like an extra turn after a place blows up if you're completing an objective, right? Like maybe you get a choice. Do you want to keep that place around for one more turn or whatever else just to give you some kind of a chance to complete it? You know, if you're more than one or two turns away, it doesn't matter anyway. But yeah, if you're that close, they should give you a chance. I agree. The one reason none of this stuff bothers me nearly as much is because of what you just said. It is a very short, quick game. And I mean, a fairly short, quick game anyway. And it feels quick. So it never bothers me too much. But I also didn't have a situation where I was about to complete something and I failed where I was close a couple times and I worked really hard to remove the red cubes from those areas. But at the same time, I could see it where you have got no red cubes on an area and then two new of his clones come into that area and the number of clones add to the number of cubes you throw into the tower and then all four could spill out in that one area on one turn. So I could see it being frustrating in one of those real bad luck situations. Now, if you just neglected it, that's one thing. But if you just get bad luck, I I think, you know, there, there is certainly a possibility of that happening. Yeah, and actually, I mean, you bring up what would be a pretty easy house rule, which is that, like, the locations explode or burn down at the end of the player's turn instead of the beginning. So you can either go address it before it goes away, or you can try to complete that objective that turn in a last-ditch effort. Like, I think that might make the game too easy, but would be an easy way to kind of uh, house rule it if people are frustrated by that. Well, there's your easy mode right there. You're looking for a way to make the game a little easier? Crisis, don't burn down until the end of the turn. Boom, done. Look at that. Designing, baby! Every day. (laughs) All right, how about your number three, Peter? My number three is the deck building in the game. And what I mean by that, and I touched on it a little bit earlier, is as you go around the board, after you've done your turn, at the end of your turn, if there are any of these artifact cards on your location in the area you're at, you get to add them to your deck. And not only that, but you add them to the top of your deck, which changes the mix of cards in your deck because you're really trying to get this loop mechanic to go off over and over. And the way the loop works is you spend one green cube to do it the first time and you unexhaust all cards of the same suit. And then you could do it a second time on your turn for that suit or a different suit even that are in your hand. So the bottom line, though, is of the three cards you have face up, you'd like as many of them as possible to be in the same suit. So you really have control over this deck building aspect where you could either try to build toward one suit or build your character in a certain way. Maybe I want to be the character to remove all the red cubes this turn, or I want to be the one to move the clones everywhere so I can defeat them and destroy them. So you could build your character in a lot of different ways. It is a little bit random, right? It is like a lot of these Ascension style games where the cards come up in a offer and you only get offered what you see. But in this situation, you don't pay anything for it. You just have to end your turn at a certain location. But there's a neat puzzle to that as well. But anyway, I just like the way deck building works. I think it makes every game unique and different. The more cards that were in that artifact deck, certainly the more variety is going to be added to the game as well. And you're never going to see them all, certainly your first time through. Maybe even your 10th time through, you might not see all those. So uh, I like the way the deck building works. And I think it's an interesting addition to what would otherwise be a very straightforward game. Yeah, if you had the exact same six cards every time you played with a given character, definitely not as interesting. Uh, I'll be touching on deck building in a minute, but first let's get back to Peter's point about player count. And uh, I kind of tacked on the cooperation in the game to this. And this is almost a full con for me, but some things bring it up to a mix. The big one is, uh, like Peter said, solo is great. Really great solo mode. Uh, Fully recommend it. I I would put this up with maybe uh, Heroes of Tenefer 
in that it's a deck builder kind of card play game that does true solo in a really cool, a uh, smooth way. Uh, I've never seen a mechanic like this where you deal out the cards and like randomly determine which player or which character's turn is next. But I think it's a great way to avoid multi-handing. I think it works really well. That's the uh, the pro part. <laughs> the rest of this is not so great. Two-player works pretty well. Even at three-player, and I'm a, someone who is engaged in players' turns, I was feeling the downtime in this game. We played at three-player. Above three-player, oof. If you have the kind of group where like somebody pulls out their phone when nothing is going on, this is going to be a game that does that to that group. <laughs> There's a few things at work here. Yes, you could be engaged in other people's turns. But first of all, there is no hidden information. All the cards are just out. The only thing you're not sure about is what Dr. Foe is going to do at the beginning of the turn. So you have definitely the potential for quarterbacking, definitely the potential for alpha player if your group leans that direction. And and that's where it's tough for this whole engagement question. Because, yeah, you can say, oh, if you're engaged in other players' turns, that long downtime is not going to be that bad. And the downtime is so long because there's a big puzzle to your turn. Peter and I will both talk about that later, I think. But if you're suggesting you might be alpha playering, and, like, I'm very sensitive about that, so I don't want to, like, talk too much during somebody else's turn and tell them what to do. But there's really nothing else for you to do on your turn. Like, Peter said there's, like, I don't know, a tiny fraction of cards in the game that let you do something else in the other player's turns. But the vast majority do not. Like, uh, I think in my last game, I didn't have a single card that let either of us do something during somebody else's turn. So yeah, I, I can imagine at four player and five player, like the higher player counts, and, and even at three sometimes, this is just a game with a lot of downtime and there's not a lot for you to do. And the thing is you can't even really play out your turn because the randomness of Dr. Foe and where things go and really where he's going to face mean that uh, you can't really plan ahead for what's going to happen. The board will look vastly different, even in a three player game by the time it comes around to you, which also means you can't cooperate that well because the main kind of element of cooperation besides just deciding who puts out which fires is uh, laying down green cubes for each other. But you don't know where somebody needs to be. You don't know what combos they need. So I found in our games, we just kind of put down green cubes where we don't have them and figure that'll be helpful. But you don't really know what you need to do. So yeah, I, I don't think it's a great game for cooperation in the sense of like a conversation and cooperation. It'll work well for groups who don't mind discussing strategy together and can give hints to each other without players feeling like they're being alpha gamed. I think it will work well, really well for those groups. And those will probably be the best groups for the player counts as well. But this one I would really caution uh, for above three players and even three player might not work for you. And I would also caution if you're looking for like heavy cooperation. I think it's very similar to Pandemic's cooperation. It's, it's a very similar game in that respect in that one of the main ways to cooperate is to like give advice to other people and that won't work for some groups. So this was, yeah, again, except for that great solo play and two player being pretty fun. This was mostly a con for me, the player count and how cooperation works in the game. Well, I will say it only goes up to four, so you don't have to worry about five. There you go. Sorry, sorry. My my mistake on that. But yes, four, I I would not play it at four, personally. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with much you said. And actually, I'm looking at Board Game Geek right now, and it says it's best at two. And I don't disagree with that. Actually, I would. the only thing I might disagree is I think it's really good at solo also. Oh, sure. Yeah, I would say one to two, fantastic. And I do think it gets worse at higher player count because there's a little bit of downtime. But like we said, it's a pretty quick game and turns are pretty quick. So I know we said, you know, there's a lot of downtime and I guess it could seem like that, but it's not really that long. And part of the thing is when, especially when you and I were playing and probably most of the times you played it, you've been playing with somebody who's new. I think that the downtime would speed up if you had a group of experienced players playing it. And I actually think the strategy and stuff would be more interesting as it goes on too, because 
you could start looking at the next person's turn, right? Well, I'm really good at removing red cubes, but I'm not going to be able to do anything about this. So can you take care of that? I, I think you can even, you know, start going chess level, like two, three turns down the road. I think there might be an ability to do that. I, I don't, I don't agree with you. You don't know where Dr. Foe is going to be, except when you're at the end of a cycle. And you don't know where there's going to be red cubes and you don't know what's going to be in danger or not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like most yeah. of the time, you really don't know what the crises are going to be. It's very random how things build up. That's true. That's true. It is very tactical. I, I don't disagree with that. Yeah. And, and I have no problem with the tactical play, but I think it's best at one to two players where you don't have, not even calling it downtime. You just don't have that much of a gap before you are involved in the tactics again. You know what I mean? Did you mind it at three players when we played with Jerry? Did you feel like there was a lot of downtime? Uh, Jerry felt it more than I did. I recognized the downtime, but I was having fun looking at all the action cards you all had. Now that I've played it like six or seven times, that's not as new for me. So I actually started feeling the downtime more in the recent games than I did initially because I was very engaged in the cool card combos. Now I'm like, oh, there's Thor's hammer again. That part doesn't excite me anymore. So yes, I am feeling it more, if that makes sense. Oh, that's a, it's an interesting discussion to have. And yes, Jerry is very sensitive to downtime, which is funny because some of his favorite games are heavy Euros with a ton of downtime. So I always think it's funny that in these cooperative games, he always complains about downtime, even though in most of his favorite games, turns take five minutes. So I don't know. I see an interesting dichotomy there. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, what's your number two, Peter? My number two is the Cube Tower. And this is something that I, I talked about if you listen to our Origins episode you know, Dark Towers got this, as you said earlier, the spill had this, and this one has it too. And I think it's fun. I mean, the Cube Tower, I guess, was originally in something like Wallenstein and things like that. And that was very mm-hmm. different in that game, because in that one, you put in a bunch of random colored cubes, and some of them would get stuck in the tower. That's not the way this one works. But it does randomize where they come out. So Dr. Faux points one certain way, And cubes could come out that way, but they could also come out left or right. Actually, you know, another game that did that was Fireball Island, another restoration. Oh, yeah, yeah, good point. Because they have the three-sided Volcar head thing. (laughs) Shit, he got fireballs. Yeah, it's something that's, I guess, come into the gaming scene more and more lately. I think it's a decent way to randomize things. It's a more fun way of randomizing things than rolling three dice and then, okay, put one cube on one to two here and one cube on three. You know what I mean? Like that, that would just not be as nearly as quick or as entertaining to do. So I think these are fun. I like the way they're getting implemented into games now. And they're certainly something that draws eyes. You know what I mean? When you first see this game, that's the first thing you're going to notice. Yep. Uh, my number two, Peter's talked about it some, uh, is a mix of the deck building and kind of the action cards in general. And this is a mix again. <laughs> a lot of mixes for this game. Although this one is, again, mostly pro. Like I, I guess it's like a pro with complaints. I don't know. <laughs> What I very much like about the action cards, and this is something that was in, I don't think you ever played this, Peter. This game I covered, I can't remember. It had like this old school style. It was like humans fighting off aliens. But kind of like this game, instead of having action points like Pandemic would have, where you just do four actions on your turn, they can be any of like five options. You had very specific action cards that you could use. And this game has the same thing. So first of all, I think it's very cool. It plays into the whole like tactical puzzle of how you play out your turn which we'll both be getting into in a second. But just the fact that each character is very different because like this character can get rid of red cubes really well and this character can move very well. I appreciate all of that. So I like the action cards and it's cool that you get to deck build and especially when you can get a lot of the same suit as you called them and uh, get your loops by uh, unexhausting all of one suit. When you can get that kind of going for you, it's very fun. The part that I don't like as much is really going back to the previous uh, thing I was talking about 
when you give action cards that have specific actions instead of action points or just actions like you have an Eldritch Horror or Pandemic or any of these kind of games, what you lose is the mitigation. You lose the option to do the exact action you need, maybe at an increased cost. And that's something that I don't know if they need in the game, but I do kind of miss it. It's frustrating when there are red cubes everywhere and all the objectives deal with taking away red cubes and (laughs) we need to get rid of red cubes. And my hand has no red cube removal. You know, I would love if I could get rid of two cards of any type just to get rid of a red cube where I am or something like that. So I I like the action cards. I like the deck building, but I don't love that it can sometimes constrain your turn too much to where it, and especially when it does not match the current situation at all. And uh, I've had turns that felt kind of wasted. And, you know, I I would think that would be way worse with the downtime in a three or four player game. In one or two, it's not that bad. So that's one thing. And then also my slight complaint about the deck building, slight complaint, is that it just bloats your deck. There are a few cards that can call a card from your deck, but not that many. I I wish it was uh, Renegade Style and I would replace a card from my deck. Because when I get these cool cards, I want to get them more and more. And not only does it bloat your deck, but I like some of my starting cards and I see them less often. So the deck building was not always a fully positive experience, although the cards are stronger than the starting cards. So usually it's not that much of a complaint, but it's a minor quibble about the deck building. My main concern is just the action cards in general, not having mitigation and sometimes drawing a hand that is nothing (laughs) for what the current situation demands. Sure. And if you don't want to get those cards, you don't have to add them to your hand. It's optional to add them to your hand at the end of the turn. And whenever you beat a crisis, you get to add more cards to your hand as well. Oh, crap. I forgot that in the game today. <laughs> I was wondering why it was so hard. Yeah, like like Harrison and I almost won. We got three objectives out of four. If we had gotten a free artifact three times in the game, clearly we would have won. Why did I forget that rule? I just reviewed the rule book. Gosh darn it. I'll have, to tell, yes. I'll have to tell my son when he wakes up. <laughs> yeah, so every time you complete one of these goals of the game, you get to draw artifacts and add them to the top of your deck. So not only will you get that, but you also get one at the end of your turn, probably, for being on a location. So you're going to know two of your three cards for the following turn. It almost reminded me of Dragonfire, which I guess was also like a Shadowrun Crossfire, where you're adding cards to your deck to kind of deal with what's going on next turn. Because a lot of my times, and I guess this goes into my number one, which is the puzzly nature of the game and the player turns are very puzzly. Now you're right, because it's a tactical game, you can't totally plan for what you're going to need on your next turn. But the goals probably aren't going to cycle that much between your turns. So you can at least have some kind of an idea of what you're going to need for your next turn. Or you'll notice there are a bunch of clones on the table or there's a bunch of red cubes or whatever. And you'll kind of figure that out. And obviously adding green cubes to the board is always good because green cubes help you do your puzzle. And so green cubes you can either use to do your loop or you can spend one to just move somewhere. So for me, the puzzles in this game are really cool and really fun. Now, as Mike said, everything's on the table, right? So everybody can help with that puzzle if you want in multiplayer. And you have to decide as a group, is that something you want or not? If not, you're right. Higher player counts may be too much downtime for you. But if you work through it as a group, I don't think it's such a big deal. And certainly not telling somebody what to do with every one of their actions. Because as Jerry said with this one, I do think there are better moves and worse moves. And I think there's a cool way to solve it. So if you like looking at something and trying to figure out, okay, if I use a green cube here to do this, and then I use this green one to do my loop. Oh, wait, before I do my loop, I should spend these two cards. So I'm going to spend this one. I'm here. And then I'll use this green cube to go there. There's just a lot of stuff that combos together to make a really cool, fun puzzle for as light as the game is. And I will say it is a light game, I think. 
it, it, it expands and explodes the options that you have just with the green cubes and stuff that are in front of you. So I love the puzzly nature of the game. I compare it very favorably to something like Spirit Island. I don't think it's as deep, certainly, but I still get that same I'm solving a puzzle feeling when I play this game. It gives me all the feel goods. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. That's my number one. Full-on pro, my first one for the review. <laughs> I think it's great. I mean, it, it does play into the downtime. It does play into the potential for alpha player. It does play into the swinginess. Like, there are issues that I've discussed, but when you get down to it, the coolest thing in the game is taking your turn. And that's a good thing for a game to have. <laughs> you know, the Absolutely. best thing is what you do. <laughs> if the best thing is watching the enemies build up on the board, <laughs> what is your game? <laughs> you know, so... Yes, I, I don't have much to add. I agree with everything Peter said. The, the additional puzzle of the looping and uh, getting your actions back, recurring your actions in clever ways is awesome. It is, again, best at solo and two-player where you can do all that without watching the players around the table die in boredom, potentially. But uh, <laughs> I love the puzzles of this turn. Yeah, I agree with you, Peter. I think it is favorably compares to something like Spirit Island in just the feel of how you work out your turn. Yep. And so as you can probably tell, I'm a huge fan of this game. And maybe you're right. Maybe I wouldn't like it as much if I continually played it at higher player counts, three and four. I mostly played it at the lower player counts. I tend to play with my kids individually. We did play one three player game together and I played one four player with my wife as well. And I I enjoyed it at each of the player counts. But, you know, watching them, just how their minds work, I I think is really interesting. But Again, I think playing with a bunch of gamers, that might get old quickly. So I I don't disagree with the low player count thing. I definitely think it's better at lower player count. But no, I just had fun with it every time I played it. Yeah. So uh, here, I'll jump in with my final thoughts. Even though I had four mixes and one pro, I still really enjoy this one. I think it is quick to play. My son really liked it. It's nice that I can teach it to him. So it is a very accessible game. I think the turns are awesome. I have a lot of caveats. It can be swingy. If you don't like randomness, this can be a really frustrating game. If you're into super deck building, I don't think this is going to offer that. I don't think it's that great above two player unless you have the right group for it. But with all that being said, I think this is a really fun one. I mean, I'm going to give it back to Peter, but it's one I'd like to play again. I definitely like it more than your average pandemic style mechanic game, which is what we're going to talk about in our design discussion. I think it's doing a lot of things well. And even though I have frustration points, I'm super excited to play it more. So this was one where my final thoughts and my feeling toward the game is elevated above what my individual points might seem. Like the gestalt hole is very positive here. And I'll say I I did not think when I first read the rules and when I first looked at it that I was going to like it at all, period. You know, it was one of those games I looked at and I'm like, oh, that's all there is to it. It doesn't seem very interesting. But when I got into playing it, the puzzle was more than the sum of its parts. Now, let me ask you something, Mike, just because as a little bit of a bonus review, you played the spill and I never got a chance to play that. And that you said is very pandemic-y as well with your turns and you're kind of doing similar things where you're going around the board trying to put out fires. How do you think this compares to that one? Well, I mean, I only played a prototype of the spill and they were still changing rules. Some in my suggestion, but yes, sorry, the spill. This one is head and shoulders above the spill. So what does it do better? Well, gosh, what doesn't it do better? (laughs) The spill, I think, again, they might have changed this, but the spill has the exact same objectives basically every time, whereas this one has uh, variable objectives that change every game and what order they come out and which ones you have. So the puzzle of your turn is more interesting. The spill had very little variety between characters. Like they each have a special power, but they all basically panned out to being plus one action. 
And like, I can do this action for free this turn and you can do that action. <laughs> yeah, I can move and you can clean up a cube, but well, we're right. all going to move and clean up a cube. So it doesn't matter. It's literally like that. It's like, oh, so there's <laughs> no differentiation between us because we're just all doing the same thing. It's not, it's not quite that extreme. Some characters are more interesting than that. But yes, the, the spell didn't have the variety this game has. The cube tower worked great in the spell. I, I liked that in both games. And actually, I would say the spill is a little bit better about giving you a chance to fix the bad luck of the cube tower. And actually a lot better because since it was just an action point based game and not like card based, you always had the tools to deal with what the tower sent out your way. So th- that's one place I would say it was better. It's, it was certainly less frustrating from a randomness standpoint. But yeah, th- this game is more interesting to pursue the objectives. Your turns are more interesting. Uh, I-, I guess the spill probably has better high player count play. Because your turns are faster and you have to think as much on your turn, but that's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it, it is not a favorable comparison, in my opinion, for this bill, having played both. All right. Well, I think that's good for people to know, though, because, I mean, if I looked at the two and I did when I went to Origins, I was like, oh, these two games seem very similar to me without having played this bill. I was like, oh, I would probably like that one as well. So it's good to hear that there are differences in the action point thing. That's probably why you didn't like it as much because you don't like pandemic type games where you got basically four actions and you got to solve all these things. Whereas I don't mind that as much. So I still think it's something I want to check out at some point. I think you will like it more than me, but I do not think you will be overly impressed. Card combos and stuff like that is what I love about the loop. And it won't have that. If you play both of the games, I think it'll be hard not to compare them because even just looking at what happened and the, you know how the cube tower works and stuff and that you're putting out fires... I mean, I think there's some definite similarities there, even though obviously the way you're activating is very different. For sure. All right. So let's talk about your favorite thing in the world, pandemic and pandemic type (laughs) games. So, yes, Peter's saying that because if you have not listened to many podcast episodes, I do talk about this pretty frequently. Base Pandemic is a game that I enjoyed for a little while when it was first out and then quickly grew to not enjoy. But let's say what is a pandemic style game? I'll give kind of my definition first. Uh, A big thing about pandemic-style games is that you have enemy turns and then player turns. That tends to be like a key element. And on the enemy turns, fires are being put out. That could be actual fires in Flashpoint Fire Rescue, which is a pandemic-style game. It doesn't happen on the enemy turn. That's a player turn. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, (laughs) But no, I mean, well... But you mean not. fires are put out on the board? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, not yes, put I'm out. Sorry. Like, like place, <laughs> place, you. fires, fires are spawned. <laughs> yes. I got you. Okay. <laughs> I was confused for a minute. Yeah. yeah or disease it. cubes in pandemic or uh, the red cubes in the loop or oil in uh, the spill. So things are going out and you have this give and take of do I spend my actions, whether they're card based or in most pandemic style games, it's just you have a certain number of actions like in, you know, Forbidden Island, you have three actions a turn. Uh, do I spend those actions trying to pursue the objective that'll make us win? Or do I stem the tie that I can never fully stem of bad stuff happening? And there tends to be very little cooperation besides like maybe a, like a direct cooperation where I do something for another player on my turn besides maybe a character who like moves other characters and that kind of thing. Um, Pandemic does have the hand management, which is not uh, necessarily present in a lot of other games that are similar to it. And yeah, usually you need to complete some number of objectives. They usually take you away from putting out the fires and the game ramps up consistently uh, in some way or another. That was another problem with the spill, by the way. They had really terrible and swingy ramp up. And sometimes the game would not ramp up at all and you could just win like in a few turns. Uh, That happened in my playthrough. (laughs) 
So, so that's that's what I kind of think of as like some of the hallmarks of what I might call a pandemic style game. What do you think, Peter? Did I miss some stuff, or would you add some more? No, I think that's pretty good. I also think there is this thought of open information, especially with like pandemic. A lot of times people play with their cards face down on the table. And it does matter because I think you would get less alpha player if people held their cards in their hand. But I think this alpha player thing came from the idea that you've got your cards open on the table. Everybody has access to all the information. You are trying to solve a puzzle, but it is a puzzle potentially with a correct answer or at least with a better answer. I think the one thing the pandemic does that not a lot of games do is the acceleration, the way that works, where you get these epidemics throughout the course of the game and you're shuffling the cards, putting them back on top of the deck. That to me is a hallmark of pandemic itself, but not a lot of games have gone that route. But I think the other actions and what you're doing on your turn and the enemy having a turn between yours, those are all very similar between all these games. So I'm not sure that I would call what we're talking about today pandemic games, but I think it's the you go, I go nature of it and the puzzling nature of it. I think that is the part that we're honing in on today specifically. Yeah. And so uh, I'll jump in with uh, some of the things that I, and this is very personal. So I wouldn't, <laughs> this is our design discussion, but I'm not necessarily saying do this or don't do this. Clearly, Pandemic is more popular than any game I will ever design in the rest of my life. Like, I, I think I can 100% confidently say that with no hesitation, <laughs> as much as I like my own designs and, and, you know, the work we do together, Peter. But something I don't like about Pandemic games in general is the tendency toward alpha player. And I'm not necessarily an alpha player, and I don't play with groups that have that problem. But even so, the fact that these games tend to have almost no hidden information, and not just that, but that the fires themselves, this is something I think is very important in Pandemic. You see this in the loop too. The fires are very immediate and have a very clear breaking point. And I think that's where a lot of the coaching and the quarterbacking come in, in that players can see, you must do this. You must do this on your turn right. or terrible things happen. Like if you don't, we know that this is one of the top three cards of the deck in pandemic because it just got shuffled on top of there. If you don't go to Japan with these exact actions, <laughs> then we will lose the game. You know, we're in the loop. <laughs> we know that only these two places can be cycled to. And either way, he's going to be dropping like four cubes toward that one. If you don't get rid of those red cubes, we will lose this entire objective. So I think that's like a key thing in pandemic. And it's good because you want the fires to have these major breaking points that add tension to the game where, oh my gosh, I didn't, you know, I I left this unattended and I'm suffering majorly for that. That is important. But I think that specific thing that like the tipping point requires immediate action in some cases and immediate action that with low randomness and all the information visible is obvious to players who might know the game and might not be obvious to others, especially inexperienced players. Well, that's, I think, the key to what you're talking about here. And that's where alpha player comes in is when you have different skill levels. And look, I'll be honest, even with Marvel Champions, it's certainly something that can happen. And that's something where you have a closed hand and I have no idea what you can do. But a lot of times for new players, they don't know what they're doing and they seek out help. So when you're talking to alpha player with co-op games, it definitely tends to come from that difference of experience. And, you know, it's a pro and a con in the fact that the pro is that there's obviously a skill curve to these games, right? The more and more skilled you are at it, the easier and easier it becomes for you. And the more obvious these decisions become. And when you first play it, they aren't as obvious. So there's a learning curve, which is good, right? Because it gives you repeat plays. 
that gives you reasons to keep coming back. If you master the game after one game, I don't know that there's much of a reason to come back to games. The problem when it goes to competitive games the same way is, you know, I can't play certain games with people because they're just so much better at me, then they're just going to crush me and it won't be any fun at all. So I think all games to some degree have this issue where there's a skill difference. And I wish games did something to smooth it out. And I think some games do. Spirit Island, you can certainly play it where some people are playing with the new player beginner, like just get cards as you go along. And, you know, you can do a good enough job taking care of your own area while other people are taking care of their areas. Where I think that game has a good spot is because you're doing a lot of your things simultaneously. So there's no time for me to help you while I'm doing my own stuff. A lot of times, I think another game that does it is galaxy trucker. And I don't know that this is officially in the rules, but when they put out that free expansion, rough road ahead, I always handicap that game when I play it. So I'm going to always take two rough road ahead cards myself or more if I'm playing with new players and they're not going to have to deal with those at all, but I will have to deal with it just to kind of even out the playing field a little bit. And the game is more fun for me because when when you first play Galaxy Trucker, the fun is your ship just blows up all the time and you just laugh about it. At least some people can. I think a lot, some people can be annoyed by that. But for me, that's the fun part. And so adding Rough Road Ahead in gets me back to that point, right? Because I just can't deal with all this stuff. Your ship ends up blowing up again, which is, you know, one of the cool parts about the game. So I think there are ways to do it where you can have people of different skill levels play together. But I don't think this is just a cooperative alpha player problem. I think this is a game problem in general when you're playing with people of different skill levels. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just exacerbated in this type of game where, again, like the immediacy of the need for certain actions. Usually I'm like, I don't care if I win the game when I'm playing with like a newer player. And that's a good way to be. But if the entire game is lost because you don't do this one thing, I can just be like, hey, you got to do that one thing. No, no, just go do there. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> then you must do this. Yes. <laughs> do not pass go. Go to that location. Clear that cube, please. Well, it's interesting because the games that frustrate me with this immediacy are those programming games where you're cooperatively programming games like Quirky Circuits, right? Like for me, that's where I get frustrated because maybe I'm more of an alpha gamer than I realize because I can't, you can't alpha game, right? Cause you're not allowed to talk about what the other, it's like, it's so obvious. You need to play a left there. Why would you play a right and expect me to have a backwards card? Right. You know, like stuff like that drives me crazy. It's like, I had the left. If you just didn't do anything, we would have been fine. I mean, what you have to do, Peter, is bring some of your mindset of the mind to your plays of quirky circuits. Cause you, you don't tend to get super angry in the mind when I play a card that's, you know, the wrong number. <laughs> well, the mind, you don't have this high skill cap, right? I, I think that's where it comes in. It's not like I can be a million times better at you than the mind. You have to adapt to the people you're playing with. And the mind does something genius because it's almost so random where when you fail, you're like, oh, well, there's nothing we could have done about that. Right. But when you succeed, it's like, man, we are so smart. And that's the best part about the mind to me, whereas these games, there is a skill cap and you really do have to do smart things in order to get where you want to go. And I think that's where alpha player tends to come in and frustration tends to come in at other players is if they're clearly not doing the thing that they need to do to get somewhere when all the information's out there in the open, it can become a frustrating situation. It's hard to hold your tongue in those situations. You know, I have to retract something I said earlier. I said that pandemic-style games don't have great cooperation. And I think that very much depends on how you include in the design the presence of roles and allowing players to have roles. The spill did not do this well. Every character basically felt the same. 
And I would say even the loop, except with, I think, one of the five characters that are in the game, you don't really have pure cooperation in any of the characters' special powers and decks. Like, there's one character that moves other characters consistently, Mr. Time, I think his name is, and nobody else does that. So to give credit where it's due to original Pandemic, it's not just the character that uh, passes cards more easily or the character that moves another character. The technician or engineer, whoever builds the stations more easily, they are setting up a transportation network for every player. So I think base Pandemic and, and many of the Pandemics actually did a better job than most games of this ilk in building in special powers that gave you ways to interact with the other players and help the other players. And even if you don't do that, have your actions interact with the other players as much as possible because you want this to feel like a cooperative game. And I think sometimes games of this type can feel like you are doing your turn too much. The loop is very much like this. I think it's cool playing action cards and figuring out the puzzle. It's awesome. It's my favorite part of the game. But it's also, in some ways, a potentially very solitary experience. You know, take inspiration from adventure games and crawler games. Even if I'm doing my turn, I'm actively killing the monster that is attacking you. I'm actively getting in your way. I'm healing you. Like, I think ways to bring those sort of mechanics and mindsets into pandemic-like games is a good way to go so that each player feels unique and also feels like they are doing things for the other players and not just taking turns, putting out the fires on different parts of the board, splitting up and never seeing each other again. Well, and I think it's hard because you have this solitary turn, right? You have this turn where I'm going to do something and then the enemy's going to do something. Yeah. And then you're going to do something, then the enemy's going to do something. Again, going back to Spirit Island, I think the place that they did a great job is that all players did something and then the enemies had a turn and then all players got to do something again afterward. Or, you know, if you played cards, they'll let you do that. So I think the puzzle was more integrated. I think players' turns were more integrated. Actually, another great one, Reckoners was really good at that, right? That was the first one that had the simultaneous play. And I think simultaneous play does solve this issue sometimes, although sometimes it also feels like you have no idea what anybody else is doing. So I think it can be done well and it can be done poorly as well. I agree with you though. I think the more actions that you can have that interact with other players, like giving players cards in pandemic, things like that. Imagine how much more interesting the puzzle would be in pandemic if we could give players cards in the middle of our turn, right? I move one space this way. You move one space this way. Now we're on the same space and I can give you a card. And now I'm going to take my last two actions and then you're going to take your other three actions or whatever else. Like, I think there's cool ways to do it. There's certainly things pandemic does, right? It's like, oh, if you end on this space, then I can meet you there to trade cards and stuff. But I think it almost gives you too much pressure that it doesn't give you time to do all these cool puzzly things that it offers you the opportunity to do. So I think that might be a lesson learned as well. If you're going to give people cool ways to do things, make sure that they actually get to do those cool things. Yeah, although uh, Peter already brought this up, and we've done this and found this in a lot of our game designs. Some simultaneous designs work and sometimes not. The nice thing about Pandemic is that it's very safe. You have your turn, you have an enemy turn. It's fairly easy to balance, although you can get some weird stuff with different player counts. If you say, like, everyone gets four actions, take them in whatever order, I'll move one, then you can meet me here, you get some other potential big problems. So it's something you got to be really careful about. Well, sure, tracking actions becomes an issue then. Oh my gosh, yeah. And then also, you're going to have bigger enemy turns. And if those turns are swingy, the way they can be in Pandemic and in the Loop and other games, then that swinginess could swing even harder. 
because you're now not adding two cubes to the tower, you're adding 10 cubes to the tower. So there's much more chance of this wide cone of possibility. Whereas, like you said, games like Pandemic are safe in the fact that they can balance out how the difficulty is going to scale. Yes, there's going to be some swinginess one way or another, and sometimes things will get more out of hand based on the shuffle of a deck. But at the same time, it still narrows that cone of possibilities of bad outcomes. Well, I think we got some good lessons out of this one. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I appreciate Base Pandemic more. And I actually think a lot of games that copied it miss some of the clever things that it did. But I, I would not put the loop in that camp. I think the loop made some sacrifices to do some really cool stuff as well. You know what I mean? So I think the loop is definitely a worthy entry into this sort of action point, you go, I go game genre. But others, uh, yeah, miss the ingenious of Matt Leacock and just copy some of the bad parts. <laughs> Sure. And I mean, Matt Leacock himself has had hits or misses in this category, right? They've come up with a lot of like Fall of Rome and Cthulhu. Well, Fall of Rome is great. I wouldn't mention that one in that list. <laughs> no, no, no. But I'm saying some hits and some misses. That's why I went Cthulhu right afterward, right? <laughs> some hits. Well, I, I thought you were going to say uh, Forbidden Sky. <laughs> well, Forbidden Sky, certainly. Pandemic Legacy Season 2. We're not just going to go over the worst <laughs> of the hits. We can go over the best ones too. Pandemic Legacy Season 1 was great. So it's hard, right? Because you do everything you can to try to make a great game. You put it all out there. You think you've got something great. And then all of a sudden it breaks when you know the general public gets their hands on it. So you can't always blame designers. But certainly every designer is going to have great ideas and they're going to have not as great ideas. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, Go check out The Loop. I think it's finally getting into wide uh, distribution now in the U.S. And I think it's been around in Europe for a while. So good job, Europe. And yeah, let us know what you think. Check us out on our Discord. Uh, Go check out our YouTube channels, the streaming and non-streaming. And uh, we'll see you at the next stop. And if you're going to be at PAXU, Mike and I will be there too. So come by and say hi. Reach out to us on Discord and uh, we might try to plan a little bit of a meetup one night. And hey, before that, because PAXU is in December, there might be, I'm not promising things because things can always change, but there might be a cool announcement of one of our new upcoming games. We'll see what happens. Cool. And then last but not least, we're doing Extra Life in a couple weeks here, November 6th, I believe it is. Come join us for a full day of streaming on uh, on November 6th. Yep. It's going to be awesome. Cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun last year, and I'm looking forward to doing it again this year. All right. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and we'll see you next week for another top five list. Hey, Mike. Yeah. You know what I want when I play a game? What? An extra life. Ha! I get it. It's like video games.